Hello, everybody. Welcome. Welcome, Lou. Welcome. How are we doing today? I'm good. Hope you're feeling good. I'm doing okay. I like this background. This is a new background for us. <laughs> it's a new background, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I moved things around because as the winter came in, there's a lot of darkness outside. So yeah. I didn't want to have a gloomy look. I thought <laughs> I'd show some color and some Christmassy kind of decorations. And we're doing a rare afternoon session here for a couple episodes because you know I get a little sick this week, so we'll, we'll put it off. So right, that's it'll right. It'll be gloomy in the afternoon for these two sessions anyway, but we'll get through it. It'll be great. Right, right. Yeah. So, friends, today we're going to be talking about tapas. That's spelled T-A-P-A-S, tapas. Now, tapas actually means austerity. So we're going to be doing an episode, what is this, 188? We're going to be doing uh, episodes 14, 15, and 16. And 189, we're going to be doing 17, 18, 19. All six of these episodes have to do with tapas. Now, just as an introduction, what is tapas? Tapas, we always growing up in India thought that tapas meant going up to the mountains and just wearing a loincloth and sitting there cross-legged in the ice and doing meditation for 13 years or 12 years. Yeah. That's what we thought austerity or tapas was. What actually tapas is, it means conserving your energies so that you can redirect them towards your search of the self within yourself. Now, every holy book you read or you talk to any priest, I'm talking about just the Hindus, I, I, you know, I don't want to mention any other religions, but I suspect it's the same there too. But in Hinduism, most of the priests will say, if you say, well, what should I do? And they say, go to the temple, do some prayers. Um, uh, fast, don't eat so much, you know, that kind of stuff. That's not what the Gita teaches us. And this is why I'm, I was so fascinated. Once I started learning about the Gita, I said, I have to teach this to other people because it makes so much scientific sense. So tapas really is austerity, but austerity not because you have to wear loincloths and sit in the Himalayas, but because your body No, no, you're still muted. Okay, you there? Yeah. Okay. There we go, yep. Your, your body, your mind, and your speech has to be conserved. Listen to this. Body, mind, and your speech has to be conserved. And I will go through each one of these. So these six verses that we're going to be doing in the next, this episode and the next, are going to teach us how to do that. This is why the Gita is so phenomenal. It's a concentration of your mind, your body, and your senses so that you conserve and you don't waste any of your energy towards worldly pleasures uh, and so on. You're concentrating everything. But in doing so, any worldly task that comes to you, any business, any piece of work, you will do it in a much more efficient manner because you're laser focused. There's no distractions to yourself. So all of that energy that you save, you use it towards getting to the self. So you don't need to dissipate it. You need to concentrate it, the energy of your body, mind, and speech. So it's, it sounds like the key point here is austerity is not self-discipline, not denying yourself. It's just conserving. Conserving, correct. Yeah. yeah. And, and what, what the verse 14 is going to be talking about the tapas of the body, 
the verse 15 is going to be talking about the verse of the uh, austerity of the speech, of the voice box. And the next one is going to be talking about the austerity of the mind. So we will look at all of these. Now, then the next three verses in the next episode talk of the sattvic nature of these uh, uh, three tapases and the rajasic nature and the tamasic nature. So th it also teaches you that you can be doing tapas, but it has to be of a sattvic nature, otherwise it's not as good. All of these are meant for purification. Purification or shuddhi of your mind, your body, your speech, so that you can become pure. Why do you need to be pure? Because just like you clean your instruments, just like you clean your eyeglasses, you need to be able to see clear, so your eyeglasses need to be clear, your instruments need to be sharp and precise so that you can get your work done properly. To reach the self, you need to have your mind, your body, your intellect, your sense organs, and your speech pure so that your energies are able to get to the self. So all of this is directed only for you to get to the self. There is no ulterior motive in any of this. Nobody's asking you to go to any temples, do any pujas, give money to the priests, give money to anybody or do anything. This is all for you, my friend. So verse 14 is tapas of the body. And it says, the worship of gods, the worship of twice born, the important word here, twice born, the worship of gurus and the worship of the wise and the worship of purity, uprightness, celibacy, and of non-injury are all called austerity of the body or tapas of the sharir. Sharir is body in Sanskrit. So first thing it says is gods. So we generally tend to do in Hinduism anyway, pujas, prayers, devotion, respect to Brahman, right? We may pick an idol that we find uh, that is particularly appealing to us, say if, uh, Ganesh for many, mm -hmm. um, and then focus on that. But we know that although Ganesh the idol has an elephant head and multiple arms, that Brahman is not like that, but it helps us. And we've talked about this before, so I don't want to belabor the point, that Brahman helps us, that Ganesh the idol helps us to focus on Brahman. So the first thing is, it says, in order to become, to show tapas, to conserve your, bo your body, first thing you do is to do prayers so that it calms your mind. Um, second, twice born. Now, this is an important concept. The twice born or dvija means when we are born, we're basically like animals. There's no culture, no samskara, right? Imagine to yourself a baby that's just newly born you know, has no control over her body. Uh, she can, uh, he can urinate on the bed, uh, defecate on the bed, cry, has no culture, no sensitivity. When does that change? Sometimes never. You have people growing up as adults who are just as animalistic as anything else. But what the culture, what the Sanskriti says, is that as you get older, you learn from your teachers, from, from the surroundings, from your parents, from school, etc. You learn what to do and what not to do. And you become a human being. When that happens, your intellect becomes sharp and you're able to 
know what is right and what is wrong. If that intellect becomes so sharp that it recognizes what a human being should be doing and what cultures to follow, then you are said to be born at that time as a human being. All this time you were not really born. That was your first birth. This is known as your second birth when you really emerge as a human being. That usually used to happen at around age 11 or 12 of years of age. <clears throat> as I said, sometimes now we don't see that at all. You're not cultured or finessed. But at age 11, 12, then the Hindu ceremony of saying now you're born was to say you're now a Brahmin and put a thread, a sacred thread around you. And now you can, you're initiated into um, whatever you need to do. Other cultures, other religions have the same. So I, I think in Judaism, they call it a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah. In Christianity, they say this is a christening. Am I right, Lou? Confirmation. Confirmation. Yeah. And, and so on. So it's the same sort of thing that until that time, you're really not a uh, intellectually developed, intellectually not meaning smarts or intelligence, mathematics, physics, right. nothing like that, but to know how to be a good human being. But that happens at an early age of 11 or 12. Then in the Hindu tradition, you were sent off with your teacher, your guru, and you went out, left the home and you went and became a Brahmin. Uh, under his tutelage and then you came back home and then you got married and so on. So twice born or dwij, dwij means twice, um, is when you get your culture and your samskara and what it says is for you to do tapas of the body, you should worship the twice born. First one it said was gods by going to temples and so on and doing prayers, devotion, respect. And the second is the twice born, give them respect. And the third is gurus. Now, who is a guru? A guru is a teacher, a dispeller of darkness, who removes your ignorance by giving you knowledge, imparts knowledge of the self, that there is even such a thing. Many people don't know that, that, that there is a self within you that you need to get to. You therefore gain enlightenment from this guru or teacher. There's three types of teachers. One is when you're growing up, your mother, your father, your immediate environment, your elders teach you what is right, what is wrong. Then you leave your home and you go to school. And in school, you have teachers and other people who teach, teach you. Those are also gurus. The third is when you have a religious teacher. Whatever religion you are, you're going to your priest, your teacher of that religion teaches you what is right and what is wrong. And so those are your gurus. Um, the one who recognizes that he himself is Brahman, Aham Brahmasmi, Tattvamasi, whoever recognizes that he himself is Brahman is called as a Brahmin. So um, he says, you need to give respect to and worship um, these gurus. The one who struck, studies the scriptures is known as a wise person or a Brahmin or a guru. Then the next one is, he says, worship the wise, those who have knowledge of the self. Such a person guides the seeker away from obstacles. Service to any good person with your body causes good to come to you. Whatever you revere, you will get that same into your system. So tapas of the body, you see all of this is talking about worship to gods, 
worship to the twice born, worship to your guru, to the wise person. It's not saying, you know, torture your body. This is what we used to think when we were children, that wise people to get to that stage yeah. used to do yoga and wear loincloth and do lie on a bed of nails and starve themselves. It says, no, there's no strain on the body. There's no torture to your body. It just requires physical discipline. Then it goes on to say that worship shocha or purity. Now, why worship purity? Because it the thing that holds you back from reaching the self, the devil in each one of us, uh, is the vasanas or the desires. And that, according to the scriptures, is the dirtiest thing within you. The dirtiest thing within a person is the vasanas. So worship purity because you're focused on trying to get rid of all the dirt. If you can concentrate and get rid of the outside dirt, external dirt, you can more easily concentrate on your inner dirt. <clears throat> so it says that to you, you must, in addition, be clean of your body and your environment. Your clothes should be clean as much as you can. I mean, if you're up in the Himalayas, you know, you can't expect to be washing your clothes or sending them to the laundry. But if you go to YouTube and you see uh, videos of uh, people who have followed these people up into the Himalayas and take videos of them, it's fascinating. Temperature is below uh, freezing and and yet they're washing their clothes in the river or with the snow, they're using the snow to wash their bodies. Uh, there's no sweat there, no dirt, no dust, nothing. It's all icy. Yet they wash themselves and they clean themselves. They keep their caves or whatever it is that they're living in clean and pure. So shocha or purity is something else that is worship. Next one is arjavam, which is also known as uprightness. Uprightness, being faithful to A, your gross outside conviction. You know something. This is right. This is wrong. You're focused on your conviction and you stand up for it. You don't say, well, I believe that's right. He's doing the wrong thing. But you know what? I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. No. Yeah. You say what it is that you feel if you're asked or if you can stop something bad from happening. And the next one is your inner conscience, your inner arjavam or your conviction, which is your conscience. So stick to that. That is more subtle than the outside one. Next one is brahmacharya. Brahmacharya growing up, we thought meant that somebody who never was with a person of the opposite sex, somebody who was pure in that respect, that he was celibate. Celibacy, I think, is celibate is the English word for it. Yes. Brahmacharya does not mean that. Brahmacharya actually means self-control, control of your senses, not denial. You can actually restrain at the level of your external organs. That's called brahmacharya. Restraint at the level of your external organs. Control your senses, control your mind, control your body. You can let it out just like you can't hold your breath forever. You need to let it out just like you can't hold urine in your bladder or your feces inside your rectum. You need to let it out. You can't hold it back. Similarly, it says you must let out these uh, different excretions from your body, um, but don't overindulge, not too much, within reason, so that you're using it with some restraint. And that's well, what is tapas, that's what is brahmacharya. Last one is ahimsa. Ahimsa 
Hang on, you're not back yet. Sorry about that. There you go. Yeah. No. Uh, grossly misunderstood ahimsa, where people said, "Don't fight, don't uh, hurt anybody." It actually stands for non-injury, non-violence at all levels. So you, in fact, even though Krishna is proposing ahimsa or non-injury, in this respect, he's telling Arjuna, go fight. Fight with your own cousins and your own relatives because they're bad people. Kill them if you have to. This is a war. That's not ahimsa. But ahimsa really means controlling and not hurting if you don't need to non-injuriousness if you don't need to but if somebody's attacking you somebody's attacking somebody else the gita says you must use whatever force you need to to quell that person use less force if you can get away with it more force if you can't so such a body that has been used to all of these guidelines that we just said helps us to meditate helps us to get to the, our our inner self now, a very interesting next one, which is verse 15, is the speech. This is very interesting. I think you will uh, agree with me. The verse says, speech which does not cause agitation, which is true, which is pleasing and beneficial, and daily repetition of one's own Veda is called discipline of speech. So this speech is more subtle than the tapas of the body and the tapas of the mind. Whatever is in your mind comes out as your speech. Keep that in clearly in, in focus, that your mind is working nonstop all the time. We, I know we said this in the previous episode, but I'm repeating. Your mind does not stop unless it is in deep sleep. In your dream, it's moving. In your REM state, your mind is moving. In your waking state, it's moving. When you're listening to somebody else talking, your mind is going off on a tangent. Your mind is always working. And whenever it can, it expresses itself through its speech. So you use speech to convey one thought from yourself to another, right? Four essentials in the speech that Krishna says, all four must be there for you to show tapas or austerity of speech. Okay, Krishna says, number one, do not cause any hurt by your words or any agitation in the listener. No hurt, which is called hitha. No hurt, no agitation. Second, your words should be true, satya. If in doubt, Krishna says, don't speak. If you can speak, speak the truth, otherwise don't. Third, your words should bring happiness to the other person immediately, not 10 years from now. Not like saying, oh, one of these days you're going to hit, win the lottery. And so he becomes happy. No. If you're speaking, he becomes happy by what you're saying to him. Your speech should be pleasant, not bitter, not angry, not unpleasant. Last, number four. Your words should be beneficial in the long run to the listener and others listening to it. Okay, so these are the four. First one, don't cause any hurt or agitation. Second, it's got to be true. Third, it's got to be uh, something that they like, that they brings happiness, priyam. And the last one is that is beneficial to the listener. So as an example, if you tell an alcoholic that the local bar is giving drinks for free because the owner hit the lottery, 
yeah. right? He's an alcoholic. He's going to rush to the bar. Did you do the right thing in your speech? Did you cause him? Your words didn't hurt him, right? So no. that part was good. They are true. Yes. Yeah. They bring immediate happiness because he goes there. But in the long run, he, you did him a great disservice. Right. Next one. You tell an obese person that he is fat, that somebody that you know has been working towards trying to get his weight down and he just can't. He's got a medical issue. You're telling him his, her, he, he's fat. It's true, but no happiness in the immediate future and he will cause, cause him pain. So you've got to be careful about what you say and how you say it. Now, verse 16, serenity of the mind, gentleness, silence, self-restraint, and very pure disposition are called austerity of the mind. So the first one we did was the body. Second one we did was the voice box or the speech. Next one is austerity of the mind. That's what we're talking about. So serenity of the mind, gentleness, silence, self-restraint, and very pure disposition are called austerity of the mind. So this is mental tapas. Serene mind, the first one. The mind is equanimous, balanced, calm, peaceful. When you're selfish, what happens is you're egocentric. Mm -hmm. When you're egocentric, the mind becomes agitated. Your actions, when they're based on your desires and your likes and dislikes, I like this, I don't like this, I'm good. all of that likes and dislikes causes you to become agitated. Your mind is not balanced, it's not calm, and it's not peaceful. Or when your ego says, me, me, my, my, I, I, and your desires, all of that causes you to become agitated. Next one is gentleness, goodness of the heart. Mild in disposition, mild in action, genteel, refined, amiable, soothing, not vindictive, not ruthless, not violent, good-natured, kind, and generous. These are all things that make your mind very serene, very calm. Silence. Speaking of silence, I guess you can hear the landscapers outside. My apologies, yeah, friends. It's okay. <laughs> Is it too disturbing, Lou? No, it's fine. I was wondering if it was here, actually. But <laughs> <laughs> so, friends, this is part of life. I'm not in the Himalayas, so I have no choice. <laughs> yeah. um, so, silence. Mona. When your attention is on the world, the mind is disturbed, agitated. When your attention is on the self, it becomes serene, placid, quiet, and calm. Now, silence of the tongue, when you say people go on moan fast, right? In India, you see many people who say, I'm not talking. He's not talking today. He's on a fast. Just like here, you see people who fast for food. In India, you also fast. And he says, he's not talking. But he will point with his fingers. He's, come here, come here, come here, give me a hug. You know, yep. he'll, he'll communicate with his arms, with his hands, with his gestures, with facial expressions. And some people even take a pencil or pen and write down what it is. That doesn't help. Because what the Gita is saying is, in order to become, keep your mind still, you've got to keep your mouth shut and not communicate. Not communicate in any way. And that stills the mind. So yeah. that's a very important thing to do. To, and, and anyway, talking less 
helps a lot. You because your mind stops, uh, thinks non-stop. You yep. need to be able to stop it and to calm it down. Next one is self-restraint. When the mind rests upon the self within, it becomes calm because it no longer indulges in material or sensual thoughts. It gains self-restraint and restraint over the mind. Last one, very pure disposition. Chaste thought and feeling. A very clean thoughts, feeling, generous, and based on understanding, not condemning. You want to see somebody say, ah, he's terrible. That's con condemnation. Instead, you're saying, I understand why he's like that. That helps because your disposition becomes purer. Not censuring somebody, but instead forgiving somebody. Not hating somebody, but trying to find something within that person to love. Not self-aggrandizing, saying, I'm so great but sacrificing for the other, not taking from the other, but instead giving. So these are all now qualities of tapas. Tapas actually means heating, heating, like making warm. So the reason for tapas is heating is purifying. So what you're doing is you're purifying your body, your mind, your sense organs, your senses, and your speech. So that when your mind becomes peaceful, then you can use it to get to the self. So, friends, my apologies for the noise from the outside. <laughs> Not a big problem. Okay, good. So we'll see you next time and we'll continue with tapas, sattvic, rajasic, and tamasic. Thank you very much.